Welcome to the Grad Student Coach Podcast. My name is Jed Irvin. I'm glad you're here with me today. Had to take a longer break than I meant to between the previous episode and this one. I had a work deadline come up that demanded my full attention. Actually, a couple of things came up, but I'm back now and I'm going to finish off the three-part series we started focusing on conflict over ideas. So let's start with a quick review of where we were last week. Last time I introduced a concept called emotive distortion, where strong feelings can distort our perception of what is happening in the present. And this can cause a problem where two collaborators can kind of drift into separate realities, both believing different things are going on. A speaker expresses a story, they say something, with certain emotions inside of them and expressing those emotions to a certain degree. And the listener's brain can wind up writing down a different story, perhaps with different emotions attached. So here are some examples of emotive distortion doing its gravitational pull thing. So I'm going to narrate each of these in a dominoes falling sequential style as if this subconscious process were a conscious chain of decisions just to illustrate how one's brain might be going from A to B. The tone of voice reminds me of my ex. This person must be like my ex. My ex disrespected me. I'm feeling disrespected. This person is disrespecting me. And here's another one. That fragrance is the same fragrance that my backstabbing coworker used to wear. This person is like my backstabbing coworker. I can't trust this person. Here's a third. The tone of their laughter reminds me of when I was laughed at by that bully when I was little. I don't feel safe. I can't trust them. I'm not comfortable working on this team. Here's one more. She just used that same word that my mother-in-law always used when criticizing me. This person reminds me of my mother-in-law criticizing me. I feel like I'm being criticized. So these are all examples of how something that happened in the past can cause an emotional response in the present due to some factor that may be completely irrelevant, but skew our perception of what's going on in the moment so that we start making meaning in a way that's skewed towards matching that prior situation. So remember, this emotive distortion effect is part of a design trade-off in the human brain. From an evolutionary perspective, uh, we were much better off if we had a better safe-than-sorry approach to matching current events to past events. So if something dangerous happened to me in the past, I'll be more likely to survive the current moment if things that are remotely similar to that danger are perceived as danger, and my body is then prepared to react more quickly. So this is why we were able to survive, 
but it's a little bit of a sloppy mess in that the brain doesn't know, for example, that the odor of perfume is not important. The odor of the predator might have been important, but the order the odor of perfume is not necessarily mean that one person is more dangerous than another, but our brains aren't wired to make that distinction. So we're left with this trade-off. We get to survive. We get to experience the richness of an emotional life where we feel things. We can feel great. We can feel horrible. But sometimes those feelings are skewing our perception of what's going on. So last episode, we talked about how this emotive distortion effect led us down a road where we converted our central question of that episode, which was, how do we work through disagreements over ideas in a way that strengthens the collaboration rather than making it more difficult? That was the central question. That became, how can I best ensure that I don't tell a story that can be interpreted as being about the other person? So there were some intermediate steps I left out here, but that was where we wound up uh, last time at the end. And the answer to that question was to use what I call the no person point of view. And in our example with Nathan, where we were talking about lab availability, the no person point of view story was lab availability is a key issue. And the story doesn't mention people because there's no reason to make it personal. Or I can use a first person point of view where I'm the object in the sentence and not the subject. So last week's story would be something like lab availability struck me as a stopper. So using one of these two viewpoints to tell whatever our truth is greatly reduces the risk of activating emotions in the other person that are strong enough to distort their interpreted meaning of what I'm saying. Now, okay, let's roll around in this some more. So I'm going to bring up some criticisms that I might hear from me talking about this this way. So one criticism might be, isn't this just coddling people? It's like walking on eggshells with the goal of not hurting the other people's feelings at any cost? Well, not hurting feelings is a guaranteed consequence of speaking this way, but the goal is how to keep other people open to your ideas, how to avoid inspiring resistance to your idea, where the resistance is unrelated to the soundness of your idea. So think of it in linguistic terms. If I told you that in 10 minutes, I could teach you a dialect of English that if you speak it, your collaborations would be pretty much guaranteed to avoid the repeated cycles of unintentional relational damage and repair that could happen when speaking traditional English. I'm thinking you'd likely go for it. And that's kind of what I'm doing with this technique. All right, another criticism. I use the second person point of view all the time, which tells other people's stories, when working through disagreements, and it's never been a problem. So my answer to that is, it's never been a problem that's apparent, meaning that 
it might not always be obvious that the other person is writing a different story in their brain than what you're expressing in the moment. Might not be able to tell that. And the key point here is that miswritten story can then become a source of drag in the collaborator. And by drag, I mean issues that arise from within that can slow the collaboration, such as reluctance to ask certain questions. And so it can appear that you have a frictionless collaboration, even though the other person might be hesitant to ask you a question and wait a couple of extra days to ask it, or only ask you questions openly when you're in a certain mood. And so if they see you being stressed out or busy, maybe they won't uh, ask you the question. And these unasked questions slow the collaboration down. And these effects aren't usually detected because it would be very untypical to ask a collaborator a question like, are you always comfortable asking me any question at any time, despite whatever mood I'm in? That's not a typical question to ask somebody else, and so that's why these uh, effects can remain hidden and not apparent. Okay, then what if somebody comes back to that with, well, uh, my collaborations are always smooth and efficient. It's never been a problem for me that I use the second person point of view and tell the other person's story. Uh, it's never been a problem because the evidence is that things are always smooth and efficient and we just rock through it. Well, my answer to that is that if two collaborators are well calibrated, meaning that they aren't thrown at all by the other person's habits of communication and neither one of them winds up misinterpreting the other's story because they just steer clear of their emotive distortion effects for whatever reason. Well, this can in fact happen. If two collaborators are very lucky, they can just be well calibrated from the outset, which means they aren't thrown at all by anything the other person does or says and resistance is never inspired. So, in fact, a good definition for what I'm referring to as well-calibrated is that two collaborators just tend not to activate emotive distortion in the other. So this is not something that's going to affect every collaboration, and it's not going to affect every collaboration to the same degree. But the point is that when I've seen other people having problems working through a difference, it's often when they wind up telling each other's stories, getting caught in each other's emotive distortion, and getting pulled away from the task at hand and getting pulled into the past, into some past story that's not really relevant to the present story. All right, there's another base I want to cover, and that is revisiting the notion of resistance. So I talked about that reflex to correct, that reflex that arises when a listener perceives that I'm telling a story about them that doesn't match the story that they've written about them. Well, I left out an important detail here. What if the listener has a story they've written about themselves that goes something like, 
I'm incompetent at skill X. Well, what happens if they perceive that the speaker is telling that same story that they are in fact incompetent at skill X? Well, in this case, the story does match. Well, there will still be resistance, but that resistance is not coming from that place of cognitive dissonance that arises when a story is not matching, but instead it's gonna be coming from that I wish this weren't true about me ego defense and the negative feelings that would be hooked into that inner story. So there will still be resistance, it's just coming from a different place. However, the good news here is that that form of resistance is also avoided by using the no person or first person as object form of truth-telling. All right, let's do some more examples. Last week, we didn't have time to do many examples of taking a second-person story and converting it into a no-person story or a first-person-as-object story. So I'm going to run through a bunch of those. First example, you spilled ketchup on your shirt. Becomes, there's a ketchup stain on your shirt. Second example, you want too many people to come to the wedding. Becomes, 150 guests at the wedding feels overwhelming. Next, you missed a spot. Becomes, here's a spot that needs a second pass. Another example, if you can't see the sense in that, then I don't know what to tell you becomes, there's a disconnect somewhere in the way we're talking through this. Another one, you're wrong about the numbers, becomes, those numbers don't line up for me. Your plan won't work, becomes, issue X is a stopper. And finally, you obviously don't care about safety, becomes, there's a danger in this approach that jumps out at me. So in each of those examples, it was a story about the other person that was being told, and we shifted it to a story about the issue or about the issue and its effect on me. All right, next on our agenda here is I wanna take another walk through emotive distortion land so everyone has a set of stories in their mind with strong emotions attached. Stories about themselves, stories about others. And those strong emotions will work together as a set of gravitational forces, each of which can wind up causing this emotive distortion. So I'm going to use the term distortion field to refer to whatever set of these is present in any particular person. I have a distortion field. You have a distortion field. There will be differences in what these are and how strong the pull is, but I'm skeptical that anyone would be spared of this condition completely. Now, I wanted to give you an example of the most potent emotive distortion that afflicts me, and this is a story about party balloons. So when I was younger, I was a budding environmentalist, and I can't remember how old I was, possibly 12 or something, maybe 13. 
And I read this article about marine mammals and the effect that trash was having on them, specifically latex balloons that had managed to wind up in the ocean. Now, what would happen with one of these balloons that wound up in the ocean was that some sea creature would see it and not recognize it as being not food and would eat it. And this latex balloon would cause an obstruction in their digestive tract and they would slowly starve to death and decompose. But the balloon wouldn't decompose. Instead, it would float there waiting for yet another animal to ingest it and slowly starve to death in an agonizing fashion. And then that animal would decompose, but again, the balloon would not decompose, it would just float there waiting for its next victim. So you might have sensed that I'm getting worked up over this, and this is my feelings kicking in, right? And so when I first read this, I was furious. It just made me disgusted with humanity. Just the notion that somebody could get about 25 seconds of pleasure or a few minutes of pleasure from a balloon that would then go on to repeatedly kill unsuspecting marine mammals, that just filled me with such hatred for that kind of mentality that whenever I would see a balloon floating away in the sky, I wouldn't have the thought, oh, cool, I wonder how high it's going, or, oh, cool, I wonder where where it will land. It was, I wonder how many innocent creatures that's going to kill. Likewise, when I go to a birthday party, I would actually brace myself because I knew there was going to be these balloons there. And, you know, so you go to a birthday party uh, with um, a bunch of five-year-olds and their parents and everybody's having a great time and there's balloons. And I wanted to jump up on the table and scream at everybody that they're a bunch of freaking serial killers and they should be disgusted with themselves. And, you know, this is this is what I had to go through at parties because of this emotive distortion, I was pulled into this fury that made me simplify everybody there into this cartoonish evil entity and being completely unable to uh, have nuance about it until I calmed myself down. So this is an example of emotive distortion. I read something disturbed me greatly, made me irate, see something about it later that reminds me of that feeling, that feeling resurrects, and my impression of what's going on in the moment is that I'm sharing a room with a bunch of callous, irresponsible uh, people who just want to have fun at the expense of everybody else. When in fact, none of those people probably knew that there was a chance that one of their balloons would wind up there. And in fact, not every balloon goes off and winds up doing this. But the feelings are so intense when I would see a balloon go up, that was what was going to happen with that balloon. So that's my personal, I think my top story of emotive distortion, at least that I'm aware of, uh, from my past. Now, fortunately, I never took the opportunity at any of these parties to jump up on the table and scream at people. 
And because I was able to refrain from that, I was invited to other parties uh, that happened later. But boy, did I want to scream. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that little ride. Uh, It's fun to get animated there for a bit. So by now, I think you probably have a pretty solid understanding of what this emotive distortion is. And perhaps I've convinced you that in all likelihood, you have the same situation, you're living in the same condition. Well, if we accept that we have this emotive distortion field, is there anything we can do to prevent others from wandering into our distortion fields and pulling us off the problem at hand or pulling us into misunderstanding what they're saying? Well, I have had some experience with this. So consider someone you've interacted with who was difficult to get along with, a difficult personality. Think back and ask yourself, what was it that made it difficult to be with that person or to work with that person? Now, your first thought that might come to mind would be simply, well, they were a jerk. But then ask yourself, what behavior specifically made them a jerk? For some of you, my guess is that you might land on the they told my story in a disrespectful way square. So when I need to engage with someone who has that habit, and I know that it's going to throw me into a mode where I'm not going to be able to take in what they say, the way I keep them from throwing me off is by asking them questions in a way that leads them to tell a no-person truth. For example, let's say I have a collaborator who knows more than I do about something, and I need their advice. If If I come up and say, there's something I don't understand... That invites a story about me such as, well, that's a shocker. But instead, if I say, what's your thinking on the merits of technique XYZ? That leads them to the, to the good place, the place of relevant information and helpfulness. Talking about the issue instead of me, or saying something in a way that my distortion field kicks in. If my distortion field kicks in and I become angry the value add that they could be providing me is compromised because I might not be able to follow or take in what they're saying. I might miss out on the good that they have to offer. Next on our tour of facets of this topic, I want to talk for a minute about the anxiety that comes up around differences of opinion. I'm fascinated by this. Why is it? Why is it that we care if other people's ideas are different than ours? Well, I apologize in advance if I'm being redundant, and I've covered this before to some degree, but I want to roll around in it with more detail, just because it's so fascinating to me, and you might get something from it. So here are the thoughts that I have about why we get anxious when other people have different opinions. So first, if someone has an idea and the execution of that idea will impact me, there's no mystery why feelings would arise in me about that. If somebody has an idea and the execution of that idea will impact someone I love, there's no mystery why feelings would arise around that either. 
But if somebody has an idea about something that is purely subjective, like what is the best type of music? Why do people have passionate debates about that? Why care enough about what somebody else thinks to warrant correcting them? Why do I get anxious if I see someone doing something, quote, the wrong way, unquote, and feel the motivation or push to let them know they're doing it wrong? So one possibility I've thought of is it's stressful to learn you're wrong about something because perhaps that has implications for your ego. Another possibility, it's stressful to learn that your map of the world is wrong, your map of reality, because in essence, that means if your map is wrong, you're essentially lost. And being lost is very stressful. Another possibility that comes to mind is evolutionary baggage. For our distant ancestors, as I understand it, social danger was as risky as physical danger because being a social outcast could mean death, not having protection of the group. This could bring like a biological imperative to reduce potential causes of being tossed out, which means you really want to be on the same page. Similar to that idea is another bit of evolutionary baggage. For our distant ancestors, I can imagine that a group that is, quote, always on the same page, unquote, can adjust to challenges more nimbly. Having to work out differences of opinions at every turn slows the group down. So again, this could be another biological imperative to uh, be on the same page, to be at consensus all the time, or to have the urge to regain consensus. So for whatever the reason, it strikes me that this is what drives communities to form around belief. It's just stressful to hang out with other people who believe different stories than us, in large part because of that powerful urge to, quote, correct, unquote, the story if you're with uh, 30 other people all the time and they are constantly saying things that you think are untrue, you're in a constant state of anxiety of wanting to correct, 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 and it's just exhausting. It's so much easier to be with people who believe the same stories. So I think some of that's got to be what's going on anyway. And so I believe that our evolution leaves us with impulses that can undermine our collaborations. And that means it can take conscious effort, in other words, mindful attention, to hear those impulses and to understand where they're coming from so we can have a choice in how we respond. So when you're collaborating, it's optimal that different viewpoints and ideas make it to the table and that your collaborator's mind remains as open as possible, and yours as well, because the greater the diversity of ideas that can be brought in, the better chance of finding or cobbling together the best one. So many have been the times when I've worked well into a problem only to discover that things would have worked out much better if I had thought of the problem from a different angle from day one if only that other idea had been available at the start. 
Okay, bear with me. We only have two more stops on our tour of related issues today. So we'll be done soon. Uh, so let's see, what's our next one? Oh, yes. I want to touch on feelings and emotions from yet another angle. So with this emotive distortion idea where I'm saying that emotions, the feelings that arise due to something in the past that lead your mind astray, I would suspect there to be some pushbacks in that I'm calling into question the integrity of those feelings and emotions. So I've heard the phrase, feelings are facts. And a therapist might use this as a way to help a person unlearn a narrative that they may have taken on that leads them to not trust any of their feelings. Like if a partner tells them, it's all in your head, or you're just imagining things. Uh, from the therapist's point of view, the idea is to embrace the notion that one's feelings are legitimate so that no one is dogged by constant self-doubt. But my concepts here are coming at feelings and emotions from, from kind of a different place. The sentiment that someone's feelings aren't legitimate can be reworded as, the other's feelings aren't warranted in this situation which can be reworded further to, it is unjust that the other person's feelings arise in response to my actions, right? Like the time when I was being good and the other person got mad at me. That's an injustice to me. So my view is that this might be true if feelings arose only due to the actions in the present. If that was the case, you could have you could apply a sense of justice. But if you accept the notion that feelings arise instead from how events in the present interact with stories from the past, notions that emotions should be just or logical, those notions aren't relevant anymore. We wouldn't ask, is it just that my muscles are sore after a workout? Yet we yearn for justice in the biological process that is the emotional responses of others. But if we can't be insured of feelings being just, how can we always trust them? Well, I think that what we can trust is that our brains evolved to keep us safe. We can trust that better safe than sorry is a very effective design choice. And we can trust that design choices always have trade-offs and trust that there will be times that we feel strongly and have big emotions around events, and the strength and bigness isn't coming exclusively from what's happening in the present. But that doesn't mean that we or they are, quote, doing it wrong, unquote. It's just the design trade-off playing out. So the integrity of feelings and emotions is that they are playing out just as they were designed to do, which was to keep you safe. So one reason why we can have really big emotional responses to what other people do can be because when we had that previous experience that is bringing those emotions in, we didn't really practice good emotional hygiene at the time. We didn't feel and process those emotions when they were happening, and they've become this giant well of energy that when they get activated, it's like a volcano going off. 
And so one thing that is useful to do in that space is to let yourself actually feel the emotions afterward, feel the anger that came up, let that anger be processed in your body. Don't instantly try to push it away and get on to something else. Process it, and then when you found your footing again, apply some curiosity and try to find what it was about this situation that reminded you of that other situation in the past. What is it? What specifically brought you there? And that can be a next step in a journey of self-discovery and awareness. Okay, finally, it's time for our last stop on today's tour of aspects of emotive distortion, its sources, consequences, and fixes. So some episodes ago, I introduced the notion of degraded presence, which can be summarized this way. When humans communicate, the way we evolved to do that was face-to-face. Much of the information flowing back and forth between people that is used to make meaning out of what is being said is in fact flowing between the feeling brains in each person, the part of the brain that is evolutionarily older than the rational part of the brain. I use the term presence to capture the notion that we are highly tuned into each other. We are present with each other. We are fully aware of each other's emotional states. And when that presence is reduced because of us communicating through some medium that either reduces or blocks that emotion signal, I call that degraded presence. Now, when you're in a situation of degraded presence, what that forces is that the person on the other end of that communication doesn't have access or doesn't have full access to your emotional state, and they are forced to make one up. And when someone is in that situation, a process kicks in, which I call feelings framing and fantasy fitting their feeling brain goes through some process where it comes up with a frame of possibilities for what this might be, and then their rational brain comes up with a story within that frame about what's really going on. And this story it comes up with can be wildly off the mark. With degraded presence in play, like writing an email to somebody, you might try to write an email that is charitable or flattering to them and they might read it as being hostile and insulting. Now let's think about that process of framing, coming up with the frame. So what sources does the feeling brain have to call upon to come up with that framing, that emotional reality? Well, lacking the signals coming from the sender in an email, for example, with that signal missing, It might use uh, whatever the mood is of the moment. So if a person receiving an email 
just happened to have stubbed their toe a few minutes before, they'd be in the state of agitation, and that would heavily influence the emotional reality that they would pull into play. But let's assume that the receiver is not in an agitated state. So they didn't stub their toe, or they didn't get too hungry, or they didn't have a fender bender on the way to work. So they're just sitting there, uh, quietly minding their business, looking through their emails, and they pull the email up, and their brain needs an emotional reality to apply to that email. And this is where emotive distortion can turbocharge the process of two collaborators getting off page with one another. So if there's any word or phrase or anything about the way that email was put together that somehow is reminiscent of some past experience that has big emotions attached to it, those emotions will start to express in the present and the gravitational pull will kick in and the meaning-making process will be pulled in that direction. The frame that is then used in the present will be the same frame as the story from the past. And then it becomes very likely that the brain will write the story as that bad thing from the past is happening again. So let me throw out an example for this email case. So let's say in the past I knew somebody who was maybe a public figure or somebody I saw on television and they were all full of themselves and they really irritated me because they were so conceited or something and and they were always using these big words. And let's say that the, one of the words they would often use is the word bailiwick. So whenever I hear the word bailiwick, I'm instantly reminded of uh, this annoying person. So if some collaborator sends me an email and has the word bailiwick in it, immediately those feelings of that annoying person are going to manifest in me, and I'm going to be in a state of being annoyed when I'm reading that email, and that is going to change the meaning of that email for me as it becomes a story that my brain writes down. So, all this points to the best way to bypass these problems with degraded presence, because we all have to communicate through these channels that have degraded presence, the best way to bypass the problems with that is to bypass the emotive distortion, which means to use the no-person point of view or the first-person-as-object point of view. If you send somebody an email that has nothing about them in it, it will be very hard for them to be thrown into some past experience where they were hurt. So if there was ever a simple technique that could solve or prevent many of the problems you're going to have as you collaborate with people, this is it. And we are done. That is the last stop on our ride today with me. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope you are getting something out of these uh, podcast episodes. I hope they are helping in some way. And I hope that you are doing just as well as could be in this pandemic uh, craziness we're experiencing right now. 
So, wow, I made it to 40 minutes in this episode. That's a little bit long. So I think I'll sign off now. Yeah, so that's all from Rabbit Season, Duck Season Studios. We'll see you next time on The Grad Student Coach. To help me keep this podcast going, you can support it at patreon.com slash gradstudentcoach. There you can access additional resources and join the community to help guide content of future podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter at gradstudycoach.